first thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on the <laughs> No. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit MethodProducts.com to unleash your inner shower. We basically have one flavor of everything. You want socialized medicine a la Britain? We got that. It's called the VA. You want single-payer system where the government pays out to private hospitals and private on a fee-for-service basis? We got it. It's called Medicare. You want more like Germany and the Netherlands where you put money in a pot and then you pay it to private insurance and private insurance organizes the care? We got that. It's called Medicare Advantage and the exchanges. You know, we got everything. Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. This show gets back to my roots. People don't all know this, but when I was a blogger back in the good old days, what I really loved writing about is healthcare. And in particular, I loved writing about international healthcare systems. One of the first projects, I guess you would call it, that ever got any attention from me was a series I called The Health of Nations, where I checked out textbooks from UCLA and wrote up these profiles of international healthcare systems. How did the UK work? How did they pay doctors? How did they cover people? Um, how did Canada work? Germany, Japan? Because I wanted to know. I would hear people argue about these systems, but like, what were they? Like, What, what was the actual functioning? Now people are really doing a stronger, more methodologically rigorous job of this. Um, Ezekiel Manuel, Zeke Emanuel, has a new book out called Which Country Has the World's Best Healthcare? Zeke is one of these guys with a resume as long as my arm. He's a bioethicist. He's an oncologist. He served uh, in a high-up health policy position in the Obama administration. He's a co-director of the Health Transformation Institute at the University of Pennsylvania. He's also a vice provost for global initiatives there. He makes chocolate. He's got his hands in everything. But in this book, he looks at health systems around the world in great detail, really tries to figure out how they work, what is the best evidence we have on how they perform, and then compare them across a variety of metrics in an effort to answer, although as you'll hear, he's not quite willing to give the answer of which one is the best, but it at least offers a way for you to figure that answer out yourself or for all of us to figure it out for ourselves. Um, so this is a, a fun, wonky conversation about healthcare, and then it gets a little less fun going into the coronavirus situation, um, which he's been very involved in um, as a Center for American Progress fellow um, and somebody who's been part of a bunch of the efforts to try to chart a way out. He has unusual clarity on where we are and unfortunately where we are not. As always, my email is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here is Zeke Emanuel. Zeke Emanuel, welcome to the podcast. Ah, it's my pleasure to be here with you, Ezra. Thanks for doing it. All right, let's do it. Which country has the best healthcare system? You know, Ezra, you're like my Wharton students. You always want the answer without the work. So I know that's an evasive is that, answer. Is that what you tell all your students when they <laughs> yes. ask you the obvious question? Yes, I do. <laughs> and then I put the question back to them. But... um. I know that's an evasive answer, and I know it's unsatisfying to your listeners, but um, the honest truth is it depends what your criteria are and what you actually 
care about. So if you're a health policy wonk, a lot of what you'll care about is, well, do you get universal coverage and how expensive do you have some mechanism to control the total expenditures in the country? Um, and by that criteria, you know, we don't do well, but other countries do well. A lot of people care about, well, do I have choice of doctor and hospital, unlimited choice? And by that criteria, you know, places like Germany or Switzerland or France are at the top. Other people want, I don't want to have co-pays at the point of care. I don't want to pay the doctor, no deductibles, you know, and then you see that Britain and Canada and at least for public hospitals, Australia is good. Some people want low drug prices. You know, you got Norway, uh, Taiwan, Australia. Uh, some people, you know, they want something else. No waiting times. All right. Well, obviously, Canada, Norway, Britain, they're, they're not on your list, but Switzerland and Germany are very high on your list. So it really depends what the criteria or set of criteria are. All right. I, because I read the book and was ready for your evasive answer here, you're, you're on the one hand, on the others. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. I'm an academic. That, what what, that, what else do you want? That narrow down the criteria. Which system would you want to buy into, given your preferences, whatever they may be? So we identify four countries that I think are very good across a broad range of criteria. And they are slightly different. So depending on your weighting, you know, Taiwan has incredibly low costs, high patient satisfaction. It's got a lot of advantages, very low expenditures, but it has very Spartan hospitals and doctors see you for nanoseconds because they're seeing 60 to 90 patients a day. Uh, but you can go in and order an MRI all on your own and get it. On the other hand, I think Germany and the Netherlands are systems where you pay into the government and you then get to choose private insurance companies that organize the care for you. Germany, you get unlimited. You can go to any hospital, any doctor. Norway, uh, Netherlands, it's more narrow. You get free choice of primary care, but the specialists are, it's much harder to get to them. And then Norway has a classic single payer system where the government pays hospitals and pays doctors. And it's very good. It does have some waiting times, which are sorely complained upon in Norway, but not so bad overall. You're, you're giving me the menu. Which would you choose? I would probably choose the Netherlands if you're forcing me to choose. I do think that they have a very good combination of you get to choose your private insurer, you get to choose your primary care doctor, and their primary care doctors are really gatekeepers to a higher level of care. They're also innovative. Part of that is real culture in the Netherlands, like the United States, they tend to be very innovative and, you know, try to find out ways to get between uh, various different opinions. So I think I think it's got a, a very good system. But there are lots of other alternatives I'd be more than happy with. And, and at a high level, the Netherlands is like what would happen if you made Obamacare's exchanges a nationwide system and subsidized them properly, right? Like the, the, the Netherlands is sort of the Obamacare dream made national. Yeah, it's either the exchanges or it's Medicare Advantage made national. For a variety of reasons, Medicare Advantage may be easier to make national. But yes, it's some it's making an exchange national and then providing high levels of subsidies for people to buy in. Um, that's why health policy wonks like me like it. Which system would you want to be poor in? Poorest? I think it, Britain has a, you know, Nether, uh, Norway, uh, those are, you know, if you're poor, those are very good subsidized systems. You can also uh, 
get away pretty well if you're uh, poor in Australia. I'd say places you that are not so great are Switzerland, which has private insurance and the subsidies are good, but not great. How about if you got into a car crash? Which system would you like to be in if you were in a pretty serious car crash, you're getting picked up by an ambulance and being brought to some country? We didn't actually look at emergency medicine predominantly. You know, there are lots of countries that do a a fine job. The advantage of the Netherlands is it's a small country and everyone lives with a a, a highly dense country. So you're probably your shortest distance uh, to an emergency room is uh, in the Netherlands. Which system would you want to be in 15 years from now? Well, I actually think one of the important points that we go into and spend a lot of time looking at is long-term care. And 15 years from now, I will be 77 and worrying about long-term care will probably be on my list of things to do. And I actually think there, the Germans and the Dutch, uh, they are the two countries that we looked at that have dedicated financing for long-term care. And both are emphasizing uh, aging in place, so aging in your own home or your relative's home. Um, But they have, unlike every other country we looked at, they have secured the financing for long-term care. I think most other countries, uh, whether the United States or Britain or Australia, and especially China, are really muddling through and the consequences, a very large burden on people who have relatives who are aging. So if you really care about your children not having to care for you when you age, having this dedicated financing mechanism is important. And I would point out, you know, China is very rapidly aging. And because of the one child policy, they basically have one daughter and daughter-in-law caring for four people who are aging. And that is not going to be tenable for very long. I, I'm honestly surprised to get that answer from from you of all people because I thought you were you're going to or you've said you're going to refuse all care after age 75. So why are you worried about long term care? Oh, because you know I, I'm not pro euthanasia or pro uh, assisted suicide, and you know the chance that we will end up with Alzheimer's, end up with multiple chronic diseases, and end up needing some kind of care is high. That's what makes me worried about not wanting life-prolonging treatment after 75, because I think those do become burdensome. And a lot of people, even if they get Alzheimer's and uh, uh, have chronic disease, can live a long time. And in that situation, long-term care is very important. We've got, whatever, 5 million people who have Alzheimer's. We're going up dramatically to 15 million people. It's a big issue. And even if I don't want it for myself, for a system and for younger generations, so they don't have to worry about caring for their loved ones or that there's at least a financing mechanism for their parents or grandparents, that's a really important thing, I think, to liberate them of that worry. So uh, I'll be honest that I had an ulterior motive on that, which is do you want to be in 15 years from now question, which is that you write in the book that in the next decade or two, the U.S. will again become one of the best systems in the world, which was a sentence that genuinely surprised me. And if you made me take the bet, I would take a hard under on that. But make the case. Why should I believe that in 15 years from now, the U.S. will be not the second to worst system behind China of all the ones that you guys look at, but one of the very best? Uh, because I think we have a lot of innovation happening in our system. Uh, we have a lot of innovation, 
not focused on drugs and devices or new surgical procedures or new imaging tests. We have that too. But I think we have a lot of innovation going on and experimentation going on on how to pay for care differently and how to deliver care differently. We have I think some very successful models on chronic care coordination, and we are beginning to sort out some important advances related to mental health care. And I think the real challenge for the U.S. is to get those things generalized and adopted. Now, there are many things that can torpedo that progress. You know, we have a lot of interests that would be challenged, hospitals uh, being one of them. I would just note that a lot of hospitals are seeing decreases in in occupancy and uh, probably, you know, some of them need to close. I've argued that. And a big shift to outpatient care. I think we've seen a lot of that happening because of COVID. And I think it'll continue to happen. And I think we'll have innovation about how to do that better. I will note that at the hospital you know, I'm affiliated with the University of Pennsylvania Health System, where we have, uh, I think it's five or six hospitals. Revenue on the outpatient has now exceeded revenue on the hospital side. And that is going to focus a lot more attention on beefing up and improving the delivery and making it more seamless on the hospital side. I also think because of COVID, we've taken a decade of telemedicine slow progress and just plopped it into place. And now it's, you know, the challenge is to right-size it in conjunction with inpatient visits and use them both appropriately. But again, I think we've had a lot of innovation in that space and it a, lar- a large part of it will stay. So let me take the the pessimist side in here. I'd like I'd like to hear why why you think I'm wrong about this. So I've become somewhat more disillusioned that all the very good pilots we see either can scale up or will scale up when you do try to scale them. Oftentimes, it turns out that a good pilot um, was great leadership of that one program, and it, it doesn't work when you try to generalize it. But much more to the point, you worked in the Obama administration, you worked on Obamacare. You've seen the difficulty of passing anything in this system. You've seen the continuous efforts to sabotage or unwind what does get passed. You see that polarization is getting stronger. Um, You see that Congress is outside the context of a very acute emergency doing less and less and less. Um, You know sort of where some of these underlying trends are going. It seems to me that a prerequisite of getting the healthcare system under control, much less accelerating beyond systems that have been under reasonable political management for a long time, is being able to be in a smooth process in which good ideas become policies, become good politics, which leads to more good ideas, becoming more good policies, becoming more good politics. And our fundamental feedback loop of health reform is profoundly broken and only looks more so today than it did even a decade ago. Which part of that is wrong? Like, Which part of that do you think is going to fade such that we would be able to make these things work? Well, well, Ezra, look, if you want to be prudent when it comes to healthcare, it's always be prudent that it's going to be broken and we're not going to progress. That is always the right answer and you will be right. And I think I would add to your cynicism list the fact that there are financial arrangements with insurance companies and the way they pay that are pretty screwed up and unlikely to be fixed. So I think all of that is possible and you know you may be more right than I and you know no one 
was denied tenure in the coin in my realm by being cynical about progress in the healthcare system. And some people became world-renowned with their prog- uh, their cynicism. But I think you've raised three issues, and let me say why I think each one of them is overcomable. Whether they will is, you know, uh, it, it all depends. One is the political morass that we are in the polarized politics. So here's the positive potential. One is, I think we are going to have huge pressure on the next administration to get the universal coverage, to make it much more affordable, uh, bring down deductibles, bring down co-pays for people, and bring down drug prices. And I think that is going to be undeniable pressure. And I think assuming that either in 2020 or 2022, the Democrats take the Senate, I think you are going to have another big health care legislation that has to pass. My worry is, like you, that we pass one legislation, we don't revisit it the way Massachusetts revisited, constantly tinkering with the system and getting some of the mistakes out so that we can make it work better and better and better, which is the kind of approach that any normal organization would do when taking a big initiative is, you know, constantly refining it and refitting it. And maybe we'll figure out a way to sort of give that power to CMS in the legislation. Second, I do think payment reform is coming along. It has slowed. And I think with a new administration, that is critical. It's not sufficient, but it's absolutely necessary to move off the fee-for-service system and to really begin to pay bundle payments to pay capitation because it reorients the psychology of providers, whether hospitals or doctors, to uh, think about efficiency and to make their income related to becoming more efficient and lowering costs. I want to stop you on this point because I think a lot of people are not going to be as deep in the weeds of payment reform as you have been and at times I've been in the past couple of years. So so what is to you the single most promising experiment there? You mentioned a couple of things like bundled and, and capitation payments. Um, like what is the evidence on it that makes you think it can scale? Paint a picture of something happening now that we build up based on what we've seen with its success and it really changes the system. I think bundled payments for surgical procedures is a pretty big success. It's not a home run in, in getting you 10% out of the box. And part of that reason is we, we have to, you know, lower the, the benchmarks and, and force more serious price reductions. So I think that's very promising for surgical procedures and has not been as promising for medical procedures. And on that score, I think we've got to look at capitation and sharing of the savings. And there you can look, we did an experiment in Hawaii with all the primary care doctors. The AQC has uh, worked in Massachusetts, which is where they have paid initially just HMO doctors, but then they broadened it out to primary care doctors caring for other kinds of patients. And these models all make doctors much more sensitive to uh, sending patients to high quality providers and keeping costs down. I would say that the main barrier there, Ezra, is I think we have a lot of experience about how to deliver the care better. And the main barrier is it hasn't been in doctors' financial interest. And we don't have all the players, whether it's Medicare, Medicaid, or private insurance, all working in the same direction. And I think that's the key. CMS does have the power to make these experiments uh, and work with other providers. And I think that has to be much more aggressively used. So, you know, you're not going to get 
hospitals and doctors to do something that's completely against their financial interest. You have to make it in their either limit their financial interest or make it in their financial interest to do some of these reforms. When I think back to Obamacare, there has always been a tension between two theories of how you save money. One is that you can align incentives across the system, such as things we don't need to do and thus things that would not be missed don't get done, right? That's sort of the dream of payment reform. You can save a bunch of money and the care gets better. And like there's money you can save in that. And then something that some of us were arguing about at the time and I think has gained a lot more momentum in the ensuing years is saying just straight up cut the prices we pay for things. Medicare pays at this point about half of what private insurance pays for the same services. You mentioned in the book um, negotiating down drug prices as other countries do, but other countries do this almost for every service, um, including all kinds of surgeries and and medical device um, interventions. To what extent do those two things go together? And to what extent do you think that should be a major goal of reform to move the system to, say, a Medicare payment level? Yes, I think you do have to bring the prices down. And I have discussed drug prices. Everyone understands drug prices. A point I make is that we have about four to four and a half percent of the world's population in the United States with 330 million people out of 7.8 billion people. About 40 to 45 percent of all drug expenditures in the world are in the U.S. That is a ridiculous system. And we have to get the prices of drugs down, and I think more correlated with their health benefit. So that the bigger your health benefit, the bigger the price you can get. And when you don't provide much health benefit, we should lower the price. And I think that will have a pretty dramatic effect on our overall spending. Second, I agree with you, prices for private services and in particular private hospitals, are way high compared to Medicare. About 20 years ago, they were pretty even, and now they've been split in their, as you point out, roughly double, maybe a little over double. And we have to, we have to legislate that down. Hospitals have gotten quasi-monopolies in small areas, and they're able to leverage that to high prices. We have to just put a cap on prices. I think uh, actually the conservative health policy person, Avik Roy, has a very clever idea, which is you correlate the multiple of Medicare that hospitals can charge to the amount of concentration in the market they have. The more concentrated they are, the less they can charge. And then if you have less concentration, there will be competition driving prices down. And I think that's a very good kind of approach. But we can't let the market work because the market isn't working in that. So I definitely think we need pressure on prices. And by the way, if you put pressure on prices, doctors and hospitals will think about, okay, what's the alternative payment model I should adopt or would be willing to adopt that gets me out of this box? Right now, I think actually for doctors, payment reform looks appealing in large measure because it might get them out of the, you know, utilization management where they have to get They have to go to insurance companies and say, mother, may I order an MRI? Mother, may I use this expensive drug? And if you have payment reform, you probably can either get rid of that or certainly reduce it. And I think that would make doctors happy and they might even be willing to give up some money for less hassle in that regard. And the patients would love less hassle in that regard, too. When I asked you which system you would choose and you chose the Netherlands, you mentioned having a choice of private insurer. What is the case that private insurers, putting aside their political potency, putting aside the idea that there may be a compromise you have to live with, what is the case that a system that includes private insurance is better than a system that doesn't? Why should I believe they are anything but a middleman who takes a 
cut of health spending with no real benefit and, in fact, some harms associated with it? Well, uh, first of all, let's make the practical observation that the American public has very complicated views about insurance and and I would say contradictory views about insurance, right? The, the easiest applause line for a politician is to bash the insurance company. On the other hand, when you do surveys and you say to the public, all right, let's go to a Bernie Sanders type single payer and that's going to require you give up your insurance company. Oh, no, we, we loathe them, but we don't want to get rid of them. We want to keep ours. So I think we have a complicated relationship. I don't fully understand it. Maybe you do, uh, but I think I do. Getting- I do. It's, uh, I'm, I'm proud to say I fully understand it. <laughs> <laughs> I finally fit. No, I, I don't. I, I, I think it is a very complicated part of healthcare politics, but it's why I'm asking you it in the normative sense, because I think a real question, it is a really different world to live in. So I'll, we I'll, are... I'll give you my I'll give you my normative answer. All right. Okay. So I think from a practical standpoint, I wouldn't get rid of private insurance, and I agree. Part of that's their political power. They've shown with the Clinton reform where they torpedoed it with the uh, Harry and Louise ads. But part of it is just the American public's appreciation for insurance companies. I don't understand it, but it's there, and I don't want to waste my time tangling with it. So then there's a question: Can they? be value add. Certainly, you know, we went to um, Germany and they've got a hundred sickness funds, which are basically private insurers, and they clearly add nothing. In part, they add nothing because they're required to enroll every doctor, cover every hospital, and they can't actually manage patients and and the kind of protocols or, or guidelines they might put into place in the United States, they're really not doing. So there is a good case, I think, of your claim that they don't add anything. What's the alternative to having an insurance company? Well, then you have a lot of doctors. You have a fee-for-service system that looks like Medicare. And what we know that Medicare fee-for-service is actually pretty bad at managing chronic illness. Patients frequently have 9, 10, 15 doctors if they have multiple chronic illnesses. No one's their quarterback. That's 1950s medicine. Basically, you can go to any doctor and, you know, we'll pay for it, where Chronic illness isn't your main focus when, as it is the case in the United States, 85 cents of every dollar goes for people with chronic illness. You need a much more coordinated system. You need high quality primary care that refer to physicians who are specialists that are very high quality, high value, low cost, and that the primary care doctor takes responsibility for that management. I think insurance companies can make that much, much better and facilitate things. And when they do it well, it's not the only way you can do it. You could have physician management organizations, but when they do it well, they can really do it well. And there are good examples in the United States of them doing it well. And I think that management function for patients with chronic illness is essential in this system. And again, there are many ways, paths to that, but I think one path is certainly good insurers that help manage that care. One of the things that is striking to me on that, though, and and by the way, I say this as somebody who, like, way back in my American prospect days, was trying to write a piece figuring out, like, what what do private insurers add? And it always comes actually down to, I think, exactly where you you put it here. 
in theory, you should be able to have through the mechanism of the private insurer, a fair amount of innovation in care management. And that has always been the promise. I mean, that was a promise of HMOs. That was the promise of like everything, right? It's a promise of um, Oscar. It's a promise of like every single private insurance advance. And there have been some studies that some of them work. And yet, it continues to be more expensive. So maybe you'd say, well, okay, what if you had a system with all payer rate settings? So it wasn't more expensive, but then you had private insurers. So now they're not, now you don't have the issue that they're paying higher prices and they can focus on, say, care management. You have the issue of selection, which it is very hard to get them to not be trying to select out of sicker and riskier patients. So there are ways to do it, but it's difficult and they often try to evade the rules. And there's just no where that it really seems to work. I mean, even Medicare Advantage, which has at least some of these dimensions in it, it doesn't pay the same rates in all dimensions, but it does draw from the Medicare pool. Um, it seems they do a fair amount of selection and it's more expensive than traditional Medicare. It, it does seem to be a problem to me that private insurers cannot point to where they are actually able to simultaneously save some money and make care better in terms of their side of this argument. I agree with you. I think that we do have to be more tough on them to show, can you actually improve care? What have you done? But I think you're a little, first of all, Medicare Advantage does overpay to private insurers, but that's because of the law, not because uh, you would. I have long advocated, get rid of this benchmark. So the way it pays is, you know, it sets a benchmark in an area, that benchmark is tied to the fee-for-service system, and then uh, the, the insurance companies come in with a bid, and they end up getting more money, slightly more money now. Now it's down to about 101% compared to fee-for-service for the same risk pool. Just get rid of that benchmark. Just tell us what your bid is. And that would drive, because of the competition, that would drive premiums down and I think would be a good thing. So I'm all for that kind of uh, trying to force force more competition in that. But I also think that, you know, when we began star rating, so evaluating the quality that these plans have done, we've seen a pretty big migration of people, higher quality plans. And the ones that come out on top with five stars are generally widely viewed as pretty high quality and doing a better job of management and better for their patients. So I think that actually, if we were more rigorous about it and we began getting quality metrics, more quality metrics that depended on outcomes, that we were being able to get EHR data that we could use for quality like uh, blood pressure and other things, I think actually they can add value. I'm not sure I agree with your blanket claim. I think your claim has a lot of merit that, you know, they're just taking profit and not adding value. That's certainly true in many cases. But I think that in the Medicare Advantage space, I think the star rating has added a lot to improve the quality, incentivize uh, better management. So I, I'm not sure I uh, 100% agree with your assessment. And the overpayment, as I mentioned, is legislative. It's not uh, inherent in the program. You could easily get rid of it. So there's a lot of convergence of conversations about health and conversations about health care. But if we wanted to go on a national moonshot, for lack of a better term, to increase life expectancy or some other indicator of healthy well-being over the next 10 years, should that be a conversation about our health insurance and healthcare system? Or should that be a conversation about other kinds of policies, built environment, 
childhood poverty, something else. Like, is it, are we really having a conversation, the most effective conversation we could be having about health when we focus about health on healthcare, or is that really an economics conversation posing as a primarily a healthcare, a health conversation? Well, you know the answer to that question, but I'm going to give you a twist on the correct answer to that to that question. It is true that healthcare adds, you know, what is it, 10, 20 on a good day, 30 percent to health outcomes and longevity and other things, education, employment, housing, nutrition, exercise, not smoking, driving safely adds a lot more. And if we really wanted to increase longevity, we should uh, focus on these other things much more. But the twist I'm going to give you is the only way to get the resources to focus on those much more things is by reducing healthcare costs. So one of the reasons I've been preoccupied for the last, who knows how many years, at least 15, about reducing healthcare costs is less about saving healthcare and reducing deductibles and much more about creating money that we can then spend on other things. I've written articles in JAMA, in the New York Times, and lots of places. Liberals need to be worried about health care costs. And that was said at a time when all liberals were concerned about seemed to be coverage and getting to universal coverage. And I said, the reason is opportunity costs. You know, higher health care premiums means that private employers are not paying as much to workers in wages. Higher Medicaid costs mean that we're taking money away from primary and secondary education and especially college, state college education, public uh, state colleges. I think to do all the things you want, worry about the built environment, improve the infrastructure, improve education, you gotta worry about healthcare costs and you gotta bring them down. That's the link. And that's the link my brother and I made, you know, in the op-ed that we published Monday that, you know, take Medicaid away from the states and force them to invest that money in education and infrastructure. And that's a very good trade for everyone in the country. So imagine we did some of this. And so now there's a bunch of free money sitting around. If you had a trillion dollars to spend over a 10-year time frame to improve health, where would you put it? Uh, the high, And I would say not just to improve health, but the highest return investment that the United States can make is early childhood interventions, especially for children born into poverty, which is now 40 to 50 percent of the American birth cohort. So what, one of the immediate things I would do is make a requirement for Medicaid. To get Medicaid, you have to provide early childhood interventions for at least two years to every child born on Medicaid. And once they're born on Medicaid, they have to get that benefit for two years, whether they go off of Medicaid or not. Those early childhood interventions, as Jim Heckman at the University of Chicago has shown, return 7 to $15 uh, per kid. So that's one intervention I would do. I would also make child care veritably free. That experiment has been tried in Montreal. It actually pays for itself very quickly if you make high quality child care free, or I think in Montreal it's ten dollars per day. So it's you know three hundred dollars a month. That is a huge second investment I would make. A third investment I would make is to make pre-K universal, required, and free. So you can see all of my investments are investing in kids, and I think that is where you get the highest return. And it's also, by the way, the best way we have to realize equality of opportunity and increased social mobility. I think that's uh, 
you know, I don't know whether I've spent $100 billion yet, probably not, but that's where I would invest uh, those kind of resources. If you had to cut the trillion dollars over 10 years in a way that would improve health, where would you cut it from? Oh, I'd definitely cut it from the healthcare budget. <laughs> I, I think there's a, there's probably a, a trillion dollars over 10 years is only 100 billion a year. And there's definitely 100 billion dollars worth of cuts that'll make absolutely no difference to anyone. It might make people better by saving them from unnecessary care. So I, I don't th- think there's any problem with doing that. You know, I think there's uh, relatively easy ways to do it. You know, we could cap hospital spe- uh, prices. You could cap drug prices and actually lower them on a schedule the way many countries do. So, you know, we haven't talked about this, but France and Australia have ways that they, once a drug comes on, instead of allowing them to go up year to year, they actually ratchet the prices down. So I think there are lots of ways we could do that. And by the way, in healthcare, a hundred billion dollars of savings, we're still talking about chicken feed. We're not talking about serious cuts. That's what healthcare goes up annually. So just keeping it inflation flat, we could get a hundred billion dollars a year. What's your view on administrative costs as a percentage of U.S. health spending? If you had to guess, what is it now and what could it be without sacrificing care quality or something else in the system that we actually care about? Ezra, that is a great question. I don't know what it is. I forget the numbers off the top of my head, but it is outrageous. Nothing short of outrageous. And I think that there are two or three things that we can do to get rid of the administrative costs. One of them is we have the world's most complicated system. We basically have one flavor of everything. You want socialized medicine a la Britain? We got that. It's called the VA. You want single payer system where the government pays out to private hospitals and private on a fee-for-service basis. We got it. It's called Medicare. You want more like Germany and the Netherlands, where you put money in a pot and then you pay it to private insurance and private insurance organizes the care. We got that. It's called Medicare Advantage and the exchanges. You know, we got everything. Uh, You want a private insurance system with no government involvement, that's like Switzerland. We got that too. It's called employer-sponsored insurance. So that complexity adds enormously to the administrative costs of the system. If we just reduced things a little bit, a lot of bit, to, as you said at the start of this podcast, you know, Medicare Advantage or the exchange writ large. So either you have employer sponsored insurance or you're in an exchange or you're in Medicare Advantage, we would reduce administrative costs a lot. The second place to reduce administrative costs is if we pay doctors differently so we can really either significantly reduce or get rid of that utilization management function that insurance companies put in so that you have to call them to get approval for the MRI and all of that. If you put that on the doctor, you would also substantially reduce administrative costs and hassle and time. So I have no doubts we can substantially reduce our administrative expenditures, but it requires really reorganizing the system. Instead of having all these people filling out forms to bill, we could actually provide care with that, increase payment to doctors, uh, do lots of other important things. So I want to talk about innovation in the system, because another thing that gets lost sometimes when we talk about healthcare is that what we care about long-term is not literally just how much we pay, but also what that money can get us. And in some ways, it's not getting us nearly as much as we'd hope. But if we could solve that problem, then maybe how much we pay would make more sense. I often see 
the status quo defended on innovation grounds. People say, well, you can't do that because if you cut how much we're, say, paying for drugs, drug companies might not um, invent as many drugs. They say, well, every other country is paying less than we are. And they say, well, yeah, but they're free riding on us. It seems impossible to me that the status quo is simultaneously incredibly wasteful and also the best for innovation. So what would you do to increase the actual rate of medical technology and drug technology innovation in the system? How could we actually have a system oriented towards making sure not just everybody was covered, but that coverage was worth more and more and more in terms of what it could do for you year after year? That's a great question. So, you know, I'm an oncologist, a cancer doctor, and we have this crazy system where we're willing to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars, 120,000 is sort of the, you know, is just stakes now. Every new cancer drug is 120,000. $10,000 a month, that's what you get. No matter what it produces in terms of longevity, in terms of improvement uh, in the quality of life of patients. And that seems to be a crazy way of going about things. And so if we just link the price that can be charged to the health benefit, first of all, you'd have a lot less new drugs in cancer because a lot of those drugs don't have real health benefit. They might add a few months to life, but they're not taking someone with metastatic cancer and curing them. There are some drugs like that. Well, CAR-T has done that. But in the vast main, that's not happening a lot. And so if you actually connected it, you would shift the research focus away from marginal drugs towards drugs that actually make a big improvement in the length of life or the quality of life. So I like to make this contrast. Right now, because we pay so much for cancer drugs, and we pay so little for antibiotics. The last I looked, which was a few months ago, we had over 640 cancer drugs in human clinical trials. On the other hand, we have less than 40 antibiotics being developed because we pay so little for them, and they're not actually being developed because there's not a lot of return, despite the fact that the WHO has identified antibiotic-resistance bacteria as a major health threat. And the CDC has said the same. So we really need more antibiotics. We need less cancer drugs. And if you connected the incentive by saying that the price is related to the health benefit procured, you would actually, I think, realign incentives in a better way so that we're actually improving time on time. How afraid are you of the post-antibiotic era that people sometimes talk about? Because as we're living through coronavirus. Um, and I think about all the times I watched a TED talk or heard somebody tell me about the threat of a pandemic respiratory flu and thought that sounds terrible, but then we did not prepare for it. It feels very reminiscent of all the things I've read, heard, listened to about how antibiotics are weakening and we're not developing enough of them. And if one trend overtakes the other, the consequences could be disastrous. I mean, how much do you how much do you think this is one of these real threats that it's actually barreling towards us? And if we don't get on it, we're going to be in real trouble in 10 or 15 years? I do think it's a real threat. And I do think that we are not taking it seriously enough. And again, I've written extensively about suggestions. The current system isn't working. And for just a few billion dollars, we could incentivize a lot of antibiotic development if we didn't work on, rely on the pricing mechanism now, but we actually made prizes for developing antibiotics uh, where the reward is, we'll buy your patent for billions of dollars and 
I think that would actually generate a lot of interest and you would get a lot of new ideas around antibiotics and new trials related to them. I just think we we have to be a lot more creative, but I think the threat, as you point out, is very real. And again, this, this gets to our entire, why did we get into the problem of not being prepared for a pandemic? Well, it was a low probability event with a high magnitude harm, but because it was low probability year after year and we hadn't had a pandemic really since 1968, and that one was, oh, it was serious, but not that serious. Only a million people died worldwide. That's I'm saying that sarcastically. We constantly, well, we don't have to invest. Well, you know, we can invest a little. Well, and you see this over and over again, even if we get the gumption to push forward. And, you know, Secretary Levitt and after SARS did have the gumption and did push forward and created a pandemic preparedness plan. And actually, I think, did try to get us to be more prepared. But then it wanes because the next administration has competing priorities. And by the way, there are tax, always tax cuts to argue against, you know, investing in this. But I think we have to take seriously these low probability, high impact events. And as people, we're very bad at at taking account of those black swan events. Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Hear Judd Apatow talk about his experience making iconic films like The 40-Year-Old Virgin and Knocked Up. Watch Hacks actress Hannah Einbinder's stand-up special. Experience films that make you laugh out loud with fan-favorite comedians like Group Therapy, where Neil Patrick Harris, Nicole Byer, Tig Notaro, and more hilariously detail their experiences with mental health. Outstanding, A Comedy Revolution, a film investigating the impact of queer comedians with Lily Tomlin, Rosie O'Donnell, and Bob the Drag Queen, and Sacramento, a lighthearted narrative comedy with Michael Sarah and Kristen Stewart, and much, much more. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. I want to talk about coronavirus a bit. You've been very involved in coming up with, among others, the Center for American Progress's plan for how to fight it. It seems to me you've been sort of had your hand in a couple uh, other plans like this as well. Are we giving up on it right now? Is that how you would describe what is happening? Well, I think you've got a president who wants it to get off the center stage and is trying to rhetorically we're beyond that. Testing's overrated. We're just having small embers. You know, this bit blip in cases, that's just a result of uh, more testing. See, we've achieved our testing goals. It is not going to respond to rhetoric. Uh, you know, it's not even alive. And the problem is that biology is a way of getting to you, whether you want to believe in it or not. And so I think what we've seen is pretty much uh, our inability to stringently enforce the public health measures that we know work, avoiding crowds, physical distancing, wearing face masks, hand hygiene, and the rest, and rapidly opening up in uncontrolled manners. And what you're seeing in Florida, Texas, Arizona are the results of that. I think we're going to get a bit of a reprieve because of the summer and we're living life outside where transmission is harder. But I am dreadfully afraid that you move inside in the fall, call it October, November, and you are going to have a huge explosion because how do we spread this thing? We spread this thing through enclosed spaces, crowds for a prolonged period of time with forced exhalations like sneezing, yelling, singing, coughing, and Going inside is ideal for that. Have we wasted the past couple of months? I mean, we 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 did one thing, which is that we you know 
flattened the curve so we did not overwhelm the healthcare system. But in terms of building a structure so that we could safely end uh, social distancing, you know, from here to a vaccine, have we just wasted the time? Are we any are we really any further along in that than we were a couple months ago? Well, we're further along in the vaccine development process, but in terms of testing, contact tracing, isolating people and getting the public to more regularly institute the public health measures. Yeah, we're a little better than where we were. So at the peak, call it April 1st, something like that, we were at about, I think, 32,000 cases, new cases per day. And now we're at 24, 25,000 new cases. They've moved from New York and they've gone down to Texas and Arizona and places like that. That's not progress. You know, if you look at other countries or you even look at New York and Pennsylvania and Illinois, they've been able to go down pretty rapidly by stringent enforcement of the public health measures. And we don't have that modeling at the top. And the president doesn't want to wear a face mask. The president doesn't want to not shake hands. The president doesn't want to stay six feet away from other people. So the people around him don't do that. And you saw it at the press conference not a few days ago in the Rose Garden, where People didn't have face masks. They were right next to each other. They were shaking hands. They were talking in each other's faces. You know, that's not modeling the right behaviors for the American public, which is why we're in the same spot we were before. The one bright light I see is we probably have more people working on a vaccine with more brain power on it than, you know, projects since the Human Genome Project or the Manhattan Project. Um, And, you know, we're going to have some candidates. The problem and the worry I have is, you know, they might not be durable. You now have a report out that, you know, having antibodies against the coronavirus is only good for a few months. We know that natural coronaviruses that give us colds, there are four of them, that they're, the immunity to them lasts from three to 12 months. So you might get a vaccine, but it might not be as protective as you think. And then we really are in trouble. It- Trying to even think about sorry, how to respond to sorry. that. Sorry, that, that's a big. <laughs> I agree, it's a big downer. But I, I, you know, what can I say? But that this administration has been really incompetent in responding in every dimension you can imagine. Yeah, I look. I'll, I'll be honest. I've, I'm starting to think Donald Trump is not a good president. Um, I don't want to be hasty. <laughs> I don't want to be hasty in rendering this verdict. But I'm I'm starting to have some concerns about his fitness for the office. It seems to me that we're sort of existing in a very strange, I don't want to call it a limbo, but a weird middle point wherein some of the worst case scenarios we feared are not happening. We have not really had another New York City. And for a while, certainly the argument was we would. And if places like Florida and others opened up, I mean, as you say, Florida has been going up. But given how much older that population is, given how unbelievably bad their governor has been, I would have expected Florida was much more of a shit show by now than it is. I mean, it's going up and it could turn into something very bad, but it's been weaker than other places have been for some time. And I think that if you listen to some of the the, the rhetoric early on, which I very much believed, you would have expected worse. And yet at the same time, we've you know had a long period of 2,000 people dying a day. We tend to be hovering around 1,000 now. That is a lot of people at 9-11 every three days or so. The idea that we would be getting used to that is horrifying. And so there seems to me to be this space we're in where we we are not seeing the kind of unbelievable like hyper catastrophes that would shock the system back into taking real action but it is not going away by any means we're just kind of flat with some very worrying trends in Florida and Arizona and a couple of other places 
And that just seems like a very tough place for the politics. Like you can't let up, you can't crack back down because there isn't any political will for it. And it seems at least plausible that the potential for a really, really bad fall is building. Yeah, look, I, I've, I, I, I just said it. I think, you know, when we go inside, it's going to be bad. I think Florida has skated by hard to know exactly why. Part of it may be that a large part of those spring vacations were outside and the people who were there left the state taking their virus with them. And I worry that Florida's on the, will be on the verge of a, of a big explosion in four weeks from now. I could be wrong about that. You have seen in Alabama sort of maximal capacity in Montgomery. I think you're going to see it in a lot of other places around the South. And I think that's going to be a big problem and a big wake up call. But I, I think you're right. You know, <laughs> If you don't have consistent leadership saying this is going to be tough, but here's our, the steps we're going to take. Here's how we're going to mobilize the country. And once we get the number of cases down very low to just a few case, new cases a day, we'll be able to open up, do contact. We'll have the infrastructure for testing, contact tracing and isolation. And therefore, a lot of economic activity can resume the way it is, say, in Taiwan. You know, we don't have that kind of leadership and that's our problem. I mean, I think you put it right. We are more or less in the same place we were at the end of March or early April, maybe a little better. And the two places I would say better is we now have more vaccines further along in development. And I think doctors and hospitals have gotten better at managing these patients. So few of them are on ventilators, few of them are dying, uh, which is why the death rate has disproportionately gone down. But, you know, there's a lot of challenges ahead. Taking as a as a given that Donald Trump is bad at presidenting, there seem to me to be other failures here that deserve some attention. Our regulatory state has not performed well. Um, the FDA seems to me to have been a real issue. The CDC at times has done quite poorly on testing and other things. Do you think that there are bigger flaws being exposed here than simply the president? Um, do you think there are things we need to rethink in the way these agencies respond to a crisis? Well, it's quite clear that the CDC was underfunded for many, many years. And, you know, the last budget the president put forward before COVID hit or became headlines was a 19% cut in the CDC. Well, but that didn't pass. No, it didn't pass, but it, I, I, it gives you the mindset of what we were dealing with. Now, I agree with you. It didn't pass because COVID came, but it's a mindset and it's a mindset that, eh, and I think also the focus of the CDC wasn't necessarily where it should. It was still, it's still heavily focused on not doing necessarily what's important for public health. Its funding of local and uh, state and local uh, public health agencies had gone down over the years. So that became a problem. We do have to reorganize who's responsible for what. And I think have much better reporting up of data. I mean, it, it, it's, I think, my grandmother would say, Shanda, it's a disaster. The fact that, you know, we don't have every single case of COVID reported that day to the CDC with deaths, with all the comorbidities the patient has, all the drugs the patient is on, their sociodemographics, certainly their race, age, sex. I mean, when you look at the empty data cells that the CDC has and in the data it's producing, you know, you're like, this is this is not the 21st century where we have computers and everyone should be able to log on to a common database and and put their 
their numbers in daily. That's what we need. I think the CDC has actually performed remarkably badly at almost every turn. They didn't do testing well. Their guidance, and that this is partially the president's fault, the guidance has been prevented from coming out for how to open up in the detailed form that most people would want. It's been shocking. And I also think the FDA has been too easy to use its emergency use authorization for things like hydroxychloroquine under threat from the president. It's got to have spine. People have to be willing to lose their job to do the right thing. Rick Bright did that. And I think other people have to do that. To push on this even a little bit harder, though. So, I mean, you're you're right that every single Trump budget, because they're all written by like, <laughs> it's like up there you have Donald Trump and then throughout the whole administration, just the Heritage Foundation and the two barely talk to each other, as far as I can tell. Every Trump budget has proposed a cut to the CDC that's quite large. And every budget that has passed Congress has increased funding for the CDC. So they're not operating under less funding than they were under the Obama administration. And I take your point on the on the ways in which FDA has folded to Trump. But at the same time, there are places where it seems to me they should be greenlighting things easier, where they should be accelerating. I would like to see human challenge trials being set up um, on a vaccine, given how unbelievably destructive keeping these lockdowns in place are. I mean, do you have any worry that the regulatory state has remained too strict and has not moved into a war footing quickly enough during this period, has not been able to reroute funding from one place to another? Because, you know, some of this, it seems to me, it wouldn't have cost more money to just move things quicker. Some of these places seem to me to have not quite, I can't quite figure out why they have not acted with more alacrity than they have and particularly did not in those first couple of months. I would say, having been inside, you need leadership for this and you need leadership at the White House to do those kind of things. You could have, with leadership, really good leadership at HHS, probably done a lot of it. But ultimately, if you want collaboration across departments and agencies, you really need the White House to weigh in and to do it in an organized way. You know, I I will tell you, I urged the president early on at the end of February You got to do what Roosevelt and Lyndon Johnson would do in this circumstance. You got to create 10 task force, each one responsible for some other essential element of this, and to create a whirlwind of activity and just speed things up. Is it going to be inefficient in some ways? Absolutely. You're going to make mistakes and bad things, not bad things, but inefficient things are going to happen. On the other hand, you would have had a competent group doing testing, not, you know, one guy associated with Jared Kushner that still hasn't solved the testing thing three months later. You would have done it on contact tracing. We would have hired three, 400,000 people, made it a jobs program just when you're losing jobs. You would have, you know, done vaccines, therapeutics in a very different way than what we're doing today. You would have gotten people on the supply chain and really, really just created this fantastic whirlwind of activity to solve these problems. And that's, you know, that's what Lyndon Johnson would have done. Roosevelt clearly would have done it. This administration, you know, if you don't believe in government and all you've been doing is bad mouthing expertise, you don't have that possibility. And then, you know, you have a president who doesn't actually want to believe that this is real. So I'm not sure it's the regulatory state so much as, yes, leadership matters. And this is not, you know, we're not getting good leadership here. And it really matters to have someone who knows how to harness the power of government for good and not just, you know, how to primary people they don't like or demote or fire inspector generals they don't like. 
all the activity that he knows is negative. He does not know how to constructively do something with the government. For that, you need a different kind of person. How different do you think the or what would be different about the situation right now if Hillary Clinton had not only won by three million votes, but also won the White House when that happened? Oh, I, I think you would have had this kind of activity. I think she's exactly the kind of technocrat and understands the potential beneficial power of the bureaucracy that would have gotten this done. Absolutely. And I think she would have had a chief of staff, I don't know who he or she would have been, who would have really been able to to push this and probably a secretary of HHS uh, who would have been forceful on this. Would they have made mistakes? Absolutely. There is no person. There's not a single person I know, including Tony Fauci, who has not made errors here. It's the nature of the situation. On the other hand, you can minimize errors if you can make a lot of plays or you can minimize the impact of any error if you make a lot of plays and do a lot of things. Um, and I think that's how she would have responded. It's funny. I've been um, going back and forth on writing this, but something that has always been there in the, like the discourse, you know, capital D around Hillary Clinton is people saying, well, you know, that would have been a mess too. She just would have been bottled up by Republican Congress. She would have been impeached as well. It just would have been polar. Like, you know, all the, all the roads were disaster. Um, I think sometimes people have a lot of trouble seeing what it was she was good at. And this to me, one of the many tragedies in this for the country has been that there are many things I think Hillary Clinton wouldn't have been good at as president, but this is the kind of thing she is good at. She would be able to tell you <laughs> the PPE levels at, in every metro county in America off the top of her head. I mean, there was a lot of expectation that Ron Klain would have been her chief of staff, who was the, pan, uh, the Ebola czar under the Obama administration. And just the complete, like that there was somebody with that level of experience harnessing and managing the bureaucracy who actually did win the election is who the American people wanted to be president or the plurality of them, at least. And instead, we've gotten this. It's like a real reminder to folks that presidential elections have consequences. And just because you're not excited about someone or you don't see a, a path to um, like transformative change under them, you know, allowing somebody a total disaster to become president has real consequences, too. I totally agree with you. And, and Ezra, you know, like every person, she has some strengths and some weaknesses. But, you know, part of what you're getting at is, you know, at morning meetings, she would have said, all right, what's the PPE situation in X? And just asking that question tells your staff that they have to get it. They have to have that information and they have to fix the problem because that's a problem the president pays attention to. Right. And those kind of things. That's leadership in this situation. You know, look, I wasn't a big uh, fan of Cuomo's uh, beforehand. And the guy made some mistakes early on. But you got to give him lots and lots of credit for rising to the crisis and understanding how you can use the power and lever of government, of communication with the public, and get it right. And I think he's done a excellent job. And I think a lot of the qualities that he has of understanding how to use government are the same qualities she has about understanding, you know, how to, on these technical issues, actually lead. And she would have had a whole task force, probably 10 people working overtime on PPE, changing the supply chains and making, you know, getting factories up and producing now. You know, it would have been a completely different scenario. Do you think that there is any opportunity between now and a vaccine that we could really have this under control given the start we've had. I mean, and 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 to even be put a more precise point on that, 
Is there an optimistic case here where if we had better messaging and adherence to masking, to hand washing, you know, to 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 the variety of things we can do as individuals, if people were doing a better job, like getting themselves checked when they needed to, that you could be in a restaurant in six months safely, um, even in the absence of, I don't know, even even in the absence of the disease being completely suppressed. I do think we could have we could have been Germany in that regard. Uh, so I think the answer is yes. I do think it would have been possible. Is it still possible? in some theoretical world, but given the denial of the president and the vice president that this is a problem and therefore they're not going to commit the kind of uh, personnel resources necessary to get it done, we're going to squander, it appears, uh, the next three, four months before the fall hits. And so I have no faith that it's actually going to happen. Could it happen? I think it probably could have happened. And there are places to look around the country, around the world. Germany's one. Look, Italy's done a remarkably good job. Is it great? No, but it has done a remarkably good job of bringing the virus rapidly down by taking stringent measures to lock down. And that's in a Mediterranean country where people aren't really uh, the type who adhere to rules. So, you know, I think you could salvage the day. Will we salvage today? I find it hard to believe, given the predilections of this administration. They don't want to acknowledge this illness because it looks bad for them. And so they're trying to ignore it. They're trying to talk their way out of it. That's just not going to work. One of the things that scares me about this going forward is a lot of these answers require a lot of political will, particularly if the virus begins to get out of control. You have to lock down, you have to build a structure to, to open back up safely. And we did that. The amount of political will and personal sacrifice people were willing to make has been and continues to be extraordinary. But you can look around, you can look at the location data, you can look into one's own soul. And people are losing their patience with this, even in places where they care about it, even people who care about it. I see it all around me in my own life, people who were very locked down four weeks ago, six weeks ago, beginning to, to, to come out of it. So let's say that Joe Biden wins in November. And in January, you've had a pretty bad fall of this. And in January, his administration comes in. Do you think with the exhaustion people have had living with this for a, you know almost a year at that point, do you think they will be willing to do a reset and try to get this under control? Or do you think the ship will that by then have sailed and we will have just gotten used to the toll this is taking and people will have become accustomed to this as a as a risk in their life and the um, deaths that it exacts become like heart disease or car accidents or, or other things in our world where there's a lot more we could do, but we've just decided to accept a tremendous level of fatalities as a cost of modernity. Well, you're beginning to sound like Joseph Stalin, you know, that one death is a uh, tragedy, a million deaths, eh, it's just a statistic. That, that was re- this was really said in a, in, a, in a hoping we could do something different, not a, not a going for the five-year collectivization plan <laughs> spirit. Well, I, I mean, I, also, I, I will say, if everybody who's been on the show who I thought would accuse me of sounding like Stalin, I was not <laughs> expecting it to be you. <laughs> I, I didn't accuse, why, you think I'm Joseph Stalin? I didn't accuse you of sounding like Stalin. I think that that line of reasoning, it, it is a scary line of reasoning. And I think it's, we've got a non-zero chance of going that direction. 
you need a kind of leadership like Winston Churchill that says, this is going to be horrible. You know, I, I've only got sweat, toil and tears for you, but here's why we're doing it. And here's, you know, look around. It's to save that person, to save your grandmother, to save your child. That's why we're doing this. Here's what I'm going to ask of you. And here's what as a country, we're going to do for you. That's the kind of leadership we need. And that's not the kind of leadership we got. And Joe Biden is going to have to exert that kind of leadership. Now, you can exert that kind of leadership. You can model that kind of leadership. You can, again, hope that the vaccine is close or a vaccine is close. A therapeutics are close. A cocktail would be there. But, you know, it's going to be a tough situation. And by the way, there's no evidence that this administration has given a sufficient thought to actually how are we going to say we get a vaccine. How are we going to distribute it? How are we going to make sure that 220, 240 million Americans get it to provide herd immunity? I don't think they've done enough thinking. What investments do we need to make today to make sure that we can produce the vaccine? I, you know, I've talked to a lot of people trying to research it, J&J &J and Merck and Pfizer and others. And like the fill and finish capacity, the actual putting the vaccine in a vial, making sure it's sterile and shipping it out, that turns out to be probably going to be the major bottleneck. You know, are we adequately preparing to, you know, get around that bottleneck? These are problems that are going to confront the new administration. I think it's a good place to, to end, although hopefully a place where they may begin. So let me ask you the question we used to end the show, which is what are three books you'd recommend to the audience um, that have influenced you? Well, I have been reading, uh, uh, interestingly, a fair number of books on leadership, and it might not surprise you. I really like uh, uh, Robert Cairo's book on Lyndon Johnson, in particular, Master of the Senate, to understand how the Senate works, to understand uh, how you can exert political power in the Senate. Fascinating book. You know, obviously, Lyndon Johnson's a tragic, uh, fl very flawed character, but he also is a man who understands using power for good. I finished a, a book, The Last Place on Earth, which is about the race to the South Pole with Amundsen from Norway winning uh, against the British. That is all about, it's a great example of leadership, getting the things right versus, you know, taking it as it comes, not planning, not putting in place forward uh, uh, supplies and the deadly consequences of that kind of leadership. And I also tell uh, one other book that I've read that stays with me is, is the biography of uh, Nelson Rockefeller, an amazing character, actually, in America. And I don't think he gets enough credit in, in part because of the way he died, the end of his career. But he predicted a lot of the sort of negative consequences to America of going down the Barry Goldwater, Ronald Reagan route in the 1964 convention, you may remember, uh, since I know you're a good student of political history, Ezra. Kind of scary. And he was a, a fascinating person for developing innovative policies and really trying to think anew in, in many ways. He was a liberal Republican, and uh, uh, he, there's a lot there that's interesting. Zeke Emanuel, thank you very much. Thank you, Ezra. This has been a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you to Zeke Emanuel for being here. Thank you to Roger Karma for researching, to Jeffrey Geld for producing. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production. Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. 
It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com.